Commence today's show talking politics with author and national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, our friend and brother John Nichols. John, how are you today, sir? Brother Tavis, I am talking to you from uh, the Middle West of the country where <laughs> temperatures are 25 below zero. And so I am A, fine because I'm a good Midwesterner, but B, uh, lording that over you because I'm sure it's a little bit warmer there. Just a wee bit. Uh, cl- climate change is real. Uh, and so it's not as warm in Los Angeles as uh, it used to be. Uh, or even around this time of the year, but we are we are working our way through it. It's not 25 below, so I'm I'm not going to complain. Uh, I would not complain because I grew up in that. I'm from the I'm from the Midwest, as you know. Um, I know you got yeah. you got the strength. You yeah, got the <laughs> I don't know if I still have it anymore, John. I used to have it. I go back there now, and my, my bones are brittle. Uh, but Ooh. I I used to have the power when I grew up in the Midwest back in Indiana. So I, I recall those days well. Let me set the frame for this. When we come forward, we'll jump right into this. Um, the obvious story today that we have to start with and. This first hour is Donald Trump. Whether we want to or not, uh, it's Donald Trump. Uh, As expected, Donald Trump wins Iowa yesterday. The Iowa caucuses, uh, the first uh, sound off, if you will, in this campaign for president. We've been in the campaign for three years, as it were. The minute Donald Trump finally left the White House, he started campaigning. So we knew this day would come again. Uh, And yet, while we knew that Donald Trump would win Iowa, he didn't just win last night. He crushed He crushed it in Iowa last night. And there are all kinds of tentacles that offshoot what it means that he crushed in Iowa last night. Haley, nowhere close. DeSantis, nowhere close. He ran the table last night, essentially, uh, as it were, in Iowa. What does that mean? And for those who thought that maybe there was a chance that somebody could stop him, that this locomotive might be slowed down, it ain't going to be DeSantis. It ain't going to be Haley or anybody else that I can see at the moment. And if he keeps being successful at delaying, delaying, delaying these cases, uh, and if the Supreme Court says that he's immune uh, because of of his uh, being a sitting president, then it's on and popping. There is no way I see at this moment that Trump is not the presumptive nominee, that we are not going to have a sequel uh, of Biden v. Trump. That's the frame we're in. John Nichols will unpack it for the rest of the hour. Not to mention Bill Ackman, the, the, the white dude who's behind pushing Claudine Gay out at Harvard, made some strange, strange and nasty, ugly comments about Dr. King yesterday on the King holiday. You have to hear that. Our guest for the hour is John Nichols. You're listening to him right now on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Ranked number 45 on the heavy hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. John Nichols, I can't imagine anybody I'd rather be talking to uh, to unpack what happened yesterday than you. Uh, and so I'm delighted to have the National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation on this program for the rest of this hour. Uh, let me just uh, yield to you uh, to unpack it any way you want to unpack it. As I said a moment ago, Donald Trump didn't just win in Iowa last night. He crushed it. And there are all kinds of tentacles that offshoot that reality. Take it away, John Nichols. Well, my brother, it is a great pleasure to be with you, and it always is. I saw you the other day, I think it was on CNN, mm-hmm. and that made me quite uh, both enlightened and happy. Thank you, sir. Uh, Thank you, sir. They were tuning in to some important commentary there. Hey, uh, what happened in Iowa is uh, it, it should be seen on two levels, and I think this is really important. First level, Donald Trump controls the Republican Party. It mm. is his party. Mm-hmm. There is simply no doubt of that. And it's amazing to me after now eight years 
that there are still people with who struggle with that reality. They they say, well, you know, maybe if we throw enough Koch brothers money behind Nikki Haley, she could somehow knock him out of the out of the running. That's just not going to happen, and that's the message you got from Iowa. Mm. Uh, the the turnout there. Well, we'll talk about that in a second, but let me just go to this core concept. A couple of stats that'll be relevant to you. Sure, sure. A he got over fifty percent of the vote, right? Mm. With all these other candidates campaigning, people running against him spent more money in some in total than he did, um, and they had better organization than he had. DeSantis had a an incredibly uh, thorough organization throughout the state with precinct captains in every uh, place where they caucused, et cetera, the whole bit. And yet Trump still prevailed. And he won nine. I think it's when, when all the numbers are in, he'll be, he'll won 98 out of 99 counties. <laughs> the only, <laughs> the only, you know, I mean, how do you deal with that? Right. Yeah, yeah. The only one he didn't win. The only one he didn't win was Iowa City, where you've got the big university there. And even there, he finished fine. You know, he was very much in the running. And so with the people that come out for Republican caucus, these are core Republicans, Mm -hmm. they're for them. And it may be absurd, you know, evangelical Republicans voting for a multi-divorced guy who's going to trial for all sorts of incredible scandals. But that's the reality. Mm -hmm. Now, put that in a box. Keep that, keep that you know, there, because you're exactly right. He's going to be the nominee. Mm-hmm. Now, let's open up another box, though. This is fascinating. Okay. Turnout in Iowa for the caucuses was the lowest in uh, more than two decades, almost a quarter century. Uh, I was in Dubuque yesterday. There was there was just not any enthusiasm. I, I've covered these caucuses for years. There weren't the signs all over. There wasn't the, the people, even in the cold, and I know it's really cold, but Midwesterners can handle cold. Um, there were people out, you know, working the thing. This was a very uh, dispirited sort of, you know, walk through the motions sort of caucus situation. The people came. They voted for Trump. There's no question that. But they didn't come in the kind of numbers or with the kind of energy that um, that I think a lot of the media would have us believe is out there. One other thing. They did an entrance poll, right? They asked people, you know, what do you what do you think about a lot of stuff as they're going in? In, in caucuses, you got to do an entrance poll, not an exit poll. Mm-hmm. 32% of the people going in said that if Trump is convicted of any of the 91 indictments that he's facing, uh, he would be unfit for office. 32%. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I fully know that there are some Republicans who will vote for somebody who's unfit if they've got an hour after their name. I'm not naive about that. But what I am telling you is that's a striking number, and it is an indication, I think in combination with the lower-than-expected turnout, that uh, Trump's troubles may be harming him a little more Mm -hmm. than people expect. Mm -hmm. And we'll watch New Hampshire, where Nikki Haley might actually beat him, but it wouldn't be by much, and it it wouldn't derail him. But we'll keep watching to see if there's a pattern here of Republicans who are just not as not as excited as we thought they were. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then it does create an opening for the Democrats and for Joe Biden. Although I know as we continue this program, 
we will talk about many of the challenges that Joe Biden faces as well. We will indeed. Let me start interrogating now that you've uh, laid the foundation, which you did beautifully and brilliantly, as you always do. Now, let me uh, let me uh, let me press back on a few things sure. on the on the turnout. Um, it was bitterly cold in Iowa. And you're right. Midwesterners can handle cold, but it was chillingly frigid uh, in Iowa yesterday, number one. And I, I suspect that has something to do with turnout. Number one, these, these are my best responses to your, to your, to your, to your claim. And then you can respond to you know, what anybody, anyway, anyway you choose. So one, I would argue on turnout just to play devil's advocate, that it was bitterly cold and that kept people inside. It's not necessarily a sign that people aren't enthusiastic about Trump in Iowa. He won 98 out of 99 counties to your point. So maybe it was the weather. Number one, number two, it may have been uh, a foregone conclusion. Like, why would you brave the weather when it's bitterly cold, when it's below freezing? Why would you brave the weather to come out when you know this guy is going to crush it in Iowa? So why come out? So it, it, it may very well be that there's not an enthusiasm gap, John, but it was a foregone conclusion. Why, why, why put yourself out uh, in that way, number two? Number three. And this is a claim that DeSantis and others have made, and they've been hopping mad today, as you as you know, that the media called this race for Trump 30 minutes after the polls closed, if if not sooner. It was so fast because, to your point, you're asking, you're doing an you're, you're doing an entrance poll at the caucus and not an exit poll. So the media was already abundantly clear uh, that about the fact that Trump was going to win, and they called this race very quickly. Now. I know what that feels like because I, I live in California. This show is heard across the country in syndication. I'm grateful for that, but we're based in L.A. You know how many times they've called elections <laughs> before our polls close here yeah. in California? So in California, we know what that feels like. But DeSantis and others are, are suggesting that part of what dampened the turnout was that they called the race so quickly. There's no reason to go out to cast your vote in the cold if the media has already called the race for Donald Trump. Okay, those are my three responses. Now you can you can pick me apart and kick my behind. Oh, come on. I would never pick you apart. <laughs> I mean, it is a great honor to, to just be with you. And those are great responses. Excellent. And this is the only way we communicate with people is if we you know make our statements and then dig deeper into it and mm -hmm. make sure that we can stand, stand up with them and stand strong with them. So here's the argument okay. that I'll tell you. Yeah, it was cold, but you know what? People <laughs> in Iowa have cars. They have cars, my friend. <laughs> what? They have car. They have, car they have cars in Iowa. They don't. They, not just sleds and yeah. sleighs. They have cars. Yeah, in Iowa? exactly. Yeah. They're not walking down twenty miles from the farm to the, the town center to to participate in the caucus. Yeah. And you know what else? Those cars have really good heaters uh, because it's not just cold on caucus day. It's cold on a lot of days. Yeah. And so the bottom line is, the bottom line is I've covered Iowa caucuses over many years. I covered the 2000 caucus sure. where uh, Democrats are doing it with Gore and, and uh, Bill Bradley. I was there now, at the end. I was there. I was there for that one. I was there for that one. Yeah. And you still haven't got feeling back in your fingers, right? <laughs> I mean, it was that cold. Yeah, it was. Um, and so they've had cold caucuses before. The fact of the matter is uh, if, you know, the way that media covers Trump, they tell you people, his backers are so enthusiastic they'd walk through fire. Um, well, uh, you're telling me, but they wouldn't walk through coal. Mm. Um, I don't buy it. I think that the coal was a factor. I don't deny that. Wouldn't begin to deny that. But um, it's not so overwhelming a factor that it explains the fact okay. that, give you an example, in 2016, in 2016, Trump lost Iowa, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this time he won big, biggest landslide ever, right? This incredible thing. Mm -hmm. He only got 10,000 more votes than when he lost. Mm. So there's a... There's now, that's a telling. That's telling, yeah. Yeah. 
there's a gap there. That's now, right. on some of these other things, I think you're right about the media call, which is really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And, and let me give you, because I don't know that everybody listening in knows how an Iowa caucus works. A caucus isn't just stopping by the polling place, getting in line and going and casting a ballot. A caucus is you go in a room, you take a seat. The candidates speak. The um, you know everybody kind of like talks to one another. A caucus can go for an hour, hour and a half. And so if you're calling that caucus in the first half hour, right? And people have cell phones. And another thing, people in Iowa not only have cars but they have cell phones. <laughs> Uh, and people are looking on their cell phones and they're seeing that CNN just called the election, right? Just said it's all over. Does that have an impact? You bet it does. Mm-hmm. And so I think Mr. DeSantis, like him or not, has a point there. So, you know, these things we can all put in the mix. But still, I will tell you this, Tavis. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it just wasn't as energetic and as strong as I think that a lot of the media would mm-hmm. like to have you imagine it was. Mm-hmm. Trump did fine. He got his win. He's going to be the nominee. But if I'm Joe Biden, I'm looking at these numbers. And what I'm saying is two things. Number one, um, mobilization wasn't as strong as, as I think you would have expected. And that's even after Trump worked far harder in Iowa than he ever has before. Mm-hmm. He was going to small towns. He was really he was hustling it, and he had precinct captains a whole bit. Number two, again, I go back to that 32% number. 32% say if Trump is convicted of something, mm-hmm. he's unfit for office. Yeah. And that, I, again, I don't think all those people are going to vote for Joe Biden. I can tell you for sure they're not. Mm-hmm. But what I can tell you is that if they do what a lot of Iowans did and just stay home, um, that is, that's a, a bit of a warning signal for Trump. Yep. And I'm the last person in the world to tell you that people should – you know, like pop a champagne cork and think, oh, everything's over. I don't yeah. believe that. But I do believe we got some information out of Iowa that is useful and interesting as we go forward. And that's why I wanted to have you on, because you can you can help us parse um, the tentacles, as I said earlier, the offshoot, the crushing uh, that he uh, uh, was championing last night at the podium about his victory. So there are two things I want to, at least two things I want to interrogate right quick regarding that 32%, because that number is a critical number. I've discussed this on this program before with you and others, but uh, after or post-Iowa, it's worth interrogating this and digging down a little deeper. So these numbers indicate that Trump's support softens significantly, as John Nichols just said, if, in fact, he is convicted of any of anything between now and Election Day. So there are at least two or three things in that regard. Number one, because Merrick Garland dragged his feet at the Department of Justice on doing anything about this sooner, uh, Benny Thompson, the chairman of the committee, the January 6th House Select Committee, John, as you know, was on this program a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Benny, Thompson, Benny Thompson just said flat out. I asked him directly. He, he fl- said flat out, if Donald Trump wins this election, in part because he did not get convicted prior to Election Day, we blame Merrick Garland for that. And we ought to storm the Department of Justice. These are my words. He didn't say this part. <laughs> we ought to storm DOJ and just and take him out and hang him in effigy of nothing else. Um, but in, in part, we are looking at these numbers uh, suggesting that is, uh, again, Trump's support softens if he's convicted. But the if wouldn't even be in the sentence. If Merrick Garland had moved sooner and not waited on, I mean, it's 
as we all know, it's the January 6th Select Committee hearing that pushed DOJ to do something. They took their report and finally decided to move on it. So that's a long way of asking uh, my first of three questions here. How you view Merrick Garland dragging his feet that puts us in a situation where Trump can run out the clock? Mm-hmm. Merrick Garland, wrong attorney general at the wrong time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Wrong you go. attorney general at the wrong time. Honorable man? Yeah. Might have been a good Supreme Court justice if mm-hmm. Mitch McConnell had let it happen. Mm-hmm. Wrong attorney general at the wrong time. Guilty, guilty of dereliction of duty. Wow. Now that that okay, I didn't see that coming. That's that's a strong indictment, John. Guilty of dereliction of duty. Yeah, you not because he's an evil man. No, I get it. I get it. Bad man. Yeah. But simply because he fell into that Washington trap. Yes. Right. Yes. And it's sort of like, and I know how Washington works. I don't know. They're all the time, but I know how it works. Yeah. Here's the bottom line. After January 6th of 2021, 20, they all thought, well, Trump's done. Right. right? You know right. what I mean? He can't mm-hmm. come back from mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. And there was the impeachment. It didn't quite succeed. But, you know, blah, blah, blah. They thought, well, the fact is Trump never thought he was done. Never believed that for a second. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that that's an attorney general shouldn't shouldn't think that way. Right. You shouldn't think. Oh, um, it's going to go away. Why should I bother? We got other things to think about. No, you had serious issues here that needed to be examined. Um, Jack Smith should have been appointed in 2021, not mm-hmm. 2023 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and Benny Thompson is exactly right. And I have to tell you this. Look, I've covered Benny Thompson since he was first elected to Congress. Wow. That's a very, very long, very time. long time. I was yeah. down there. I was there in Mississippi when he won that primary. And mm-hmm. It was a critical it was a critical fight. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, Benny Thompson has risen to a position of great authority in Congress, uh, not by holding a lot of press conferences, not yeah. by being a showy guy. Um, he just does the job. Yeah. And yet, you know, on that January 6th committee, he did the job. He did the job that the Department of Justice should have done. Yeah. No, and uh, so that's, my, that's no, my response. I've said many times that it's, it, is, it is beyond irony that it takes a black man once again to save this democracy from itself. A brother from Mississippi helped save this democracy and forces Merrick Garland, uh, uh, who John Nichols says is, is uh, guilty of dereliction of duty, into doing what he did. But he did it so late that the clock may run out. When we come forward, I said there are three things I wanted to talk about with John regarding those numbers that are softening for Trump if, in fact, he's convicted. One, what does it mean when you're the president that your best chance to win is that the other guy loses, that the other guy gets convicted, to be more exact about it? That's strange. Uh, and, and I wonder whether this opens up the door. If people are softening on Trump, but they ain't going to vote for Biden as a protest vote, do they vote for Cornell West? Do they vote for Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Does that does it help the independents running for president? A lot more to talk about. We ain't got to Bill Ackman and his crazy comments about Dr. King yesterday. You're listening to John Nichols of The Nation on Tavis Smiley. Seeking the truth. Speaking the truth. This is the Tavis Smiley Show. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. This is Tavis Smiley in conversation with John Nichols. Our friend and brother who is the national affairs correspondent for The Nation magazine, who uh, always tackles politics with passion and purpose and um, is always uh, transparent. And I love it that way. Straight, no chaser is John Nichols. Uh, We're talking in this hour about a number of things, uh, some trending political themes. And, of course, 
uh, the big t- the big topic today is uh, Donald Trump uh, yesterday, <clears throat> not winning, as I said earlier, but crushing in Iowa, DeSantis and Haley, you know, way off in the distance. Uh, and so it uh, appears at the moment uh, that Donald Trump, um, with more evidence, uh, will likely be the presumptive uh, Republican nominee, but we're unpacking some numbers. And as John Nichols uh, does uh, so uniquely and so brilliantly, he's taking us behind some of these numbers. And the one he's been focusing on uh, for the last few minutes is this number. I'll let you unpack the number again, John, and I'll continue with my question. So it's a 32% number that said exactly what? 32% were asked uh, if Trump was convicted, you know, would he be fit for office? Uh, well, I'm sorry, 100% were asked that question. Mm-hmm. 32% of Republicans who went to these caucuses, remember, on this cold <laughs> night, a third of them said, if he's convicted, he's unfit. Okay. So and that's a big number. It's, it's a big number. So a third says if he's convicted, um, he's, he's unfit for office. That's it. To John's point, that is a big number. So we're unpacking that. So my first question to John, in case you've just tuned in, um, uh, was um, the fact that Merrick Garland, we really want a question, it was a statement, uh, that we have Merrick Garland to blame, the attorney general, for pursuing this case, these cases against Trump so late in the process that Trump now has an opportunity to run out the clock uh, and not be convicted in any of these cases that would matter between nine election days. So that one third is a significant number, but you got to be first convicted for that one third to kick in. And at this point, right. I, I don't see a conviction coming before the election. Uh, so we'll see. But that that's put, put a pin in that. But I, I'm, I, I've been mad at Merrick Garland for a long time, and I'm still mad at him the more I think about this reality, number one. Number two, I raised this issue that I want to get John's take on uh, about Joe Biden. And let's talk about Biden for a second. So... <laughs> I, I was um, I was at a, a King dinner on Monday, the King holiday, and one of the persons at the dinner who I spent some time talking to was the California Secretary of State, Dr. Shirley Weber. As you know, there have been secretaries of state all across the country who have had to make a decision about whether to keep him on or push him off the ballot. There are states that have done both. And Trump is, of course, is, is, of course, challenging that all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So we'll see what the Supreme Court says about these various 50 states uh, that want him on and don't want him on. But in California, Shirley Weber decided that he belongs on the ballot. Uh, and I agree with her until and unless he's found guilty of something, not because we love him, but because he's not been found guilty of anything. And I believe in due process, fundamental fairness and presumption of innocence, even if your name is Donald J. Trump. So Shirley Weber and I agree in California here that he belongs on the ballot. Of course, she says that also because she knows he ain't going to win in California anyway. But the point is that he hasn't done anything uh, for which he's been found guilty to push him off the ballot. So she saw it differently than they saw it in the state of Colorado. But here's my point. What does it mean, though, uh, John, to you that perhaps Joe Biden's greatest hope is that his opponent gets convicted? That, That ain't a winning strategy, brother. I agree. Look, here's the bottom line. Joe Biden has epically low approval rates. Um, he is he is not inspiring a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, he may well be reelected president of the United States as he was elected in 2020, mm-hmm. but it will. It, I think there's too much of a chance that it will be as the alternative to Trump. Right, that he's a little better than Trump. And when you're in a situation like that, it can go either way. Mm-hmm. He could get reelected. He could lose. And so here's where, here's where I, I get into my great concern about the Democratic Party. And I've written a book, books about this. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's something, not, not, nothing new. I've been talking about this for a long time. 
Democrats have, I think since the Clinton years, fallen into the trap of uh, saying they're better than Republicans, right? They're, they're not as bad as the Republicans. It's, you know, hold your nose and vote for us. And that is a, it can be a winning strategy sometimes, I understand, but it can also blow up on you. It blew up on them in 2016, uh, many other times before that. And so I continue to express deep concern about how Joe Biden is approaching this reelection campaign. And just as in Iowa, you know, Trump had his test uh, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Next week in New Hampshire, Biden's going to have a bit of a test as well. Mm-hmm. And if a substantial number of New Hampshire voters, you know, say, let's say a third of New Hampshire voters don't vote for Biden, right? They vote for Dean Phillips or Marianne Williamson, or maybe as there's a campaign out there trying to write in ceasefire now um, on Gaza. You know, whatever whatever happens, if, if he loses a substantial portion of the vote there, I think Democrats, just as I'm saying Republicans, you know, ought to take a look at this one third of folks who think that Trump would be unfit if convicted. Democrats ought to also be looking at at these realities that Biden has not done the basics, I think, or some of the basics on uniting the, the kind of core yeah. base of the Democratic Party. That's yeah. a big problem politically. No, it is. <clears throat> let me let me try this on you for size and see if this fits. This may or may not be a garment that fits well on you, but let me just let me try it on you. Uh-huh. All right. So Democrats have done something for the last number of years that I find, speaking of holding your nose, I find it reprehensible. I understand the strategy or as George Bush would say, the strategery. I understand the strategery uh-huh. behind it, but but I hate it as a as a strategy. So Democrats, as you know, across the country in certain and selected races, have supported a particular Republican candidate um, to challenge the person, I mean, to, to, to kick out the person they really don't want to run against or to make it harder for that person to win the nomination. You know this strategy where they pick a person in, in a particular race for their own reasons and Democrats will pour money and support into a particular race on the other side of the ticket to achieve a particular desired outcome. I hate that strategy. You're aiding and abetting them because in the end, you think it's a better strategy for you. Okay, I get it, but it's sick. Um, Republicans could do the same thing. So that one third that we're talking about, they could take a page out of the Democratic playbook and decide they're not going to vote for Trump if he's convicted because he is then unfit for office as they see it. But they can't stand Joe Biden either. So now you leverage now you can you can leverage your vote as a protest vote. You could do what Democrats have done. Uh, in Republican races and vote for Cornell West or or, or, or Bobby Kennedy or, or Marianne Williamson or Dean Phillips or any of these other independents that are running. It, it sounds far-fetched, but if the Democrats can do it, why can't Republicans? If it's good for the goose, why ain't it good for the gander, John? Well, I think, so you're talking, let's talk about two separate things. Sure. One, possibility that it, that some Republicans might come into Democratic primary, you know, and states that allow open voting. And, you know, vote for Marion Williamson or uh, Dean Phillips or somebody to embarrass Biden. Mm-hmm. I think in the primary process, that is within the realm of possibility. And, you know, we've, we've seen some of that in the past. And right. I wouldn't be shocked if we did again. Um, in the general election, this is you're getting to something that's really important here. Um, look, if you've got a substantial number of Republicans who feel like they can't vote for their candidate, their party's candidate, and you've got a substantial number of Democrats who feel the same way, we've run the possibility this year of having a, a large number of voters who cast their ballots for independent and third-party candidates who cannot win or who are very unlikely to win 
but who could affect the, the result. Mm-hmm. And then the big test, this is a fascinating test, it's who keeps enough of their base within their camp, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, which, which party loses more into that voting for independents and third-party candidates? Mm-hmm. Now, I'll give you a good example of where this happened in your lifetime and mine. Hold that, hold that thought, John. I, I, want, I want to hear that great example. I hate to cut you off. I want to hear that great example in your lifetime and mine. Um, this is not far-fetched at all. Again, Democrats have been doing this for a while now, picking and popping and playing the way they want to for a desired outcome. Republicans are no better than we are. Our Democrats are doing the same thing. But I want to hear this example that John has uh, when we come forward. Agency Dignity. This is Tavis Smiley. Can you dig it? Come on! Fresh Daily in Lemert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. You're listening to John Nichols of The Nation magazine giving us an example that uh, he didn't get a chance to complete moments ago. Take it away, John. All right, my friend. Well, we're talking about, you know, this losing people off from the two parties because people are frustrated with the candidates of both parties. I, I take you back to 1980. Uh, in 1980, Jimmy Carter was re-nominated for president of the United States, Democratic president, but he had a lot of internal opposition. There was a great deal of frustration with him. Uh, Teddy Kennedy ran against him in the primary, so did mm-hmm. Jerry Brown. Mm-hmm. Didn't beat him, but but defeated that opposition. Over on the Republican side, you had Ronald Reagan get the nomination. But an awful lot of Republicans in those days were still moderate Republicans who thought Reagan was too extreme, was too out there. Uh, and also a former actor. They didn't take him as seriously as, frankly, they should have. End result, in 1980, the uh, Libertarian Party got a million votes. John Anderson, running mm-hmm. as a former congressman, he got millions of votes and actually got, I think it was like 6-7% of the overall total. Um, Barry Commoner, the scientist, got a, a substantial vote on a very left-wing ticket. Bottom line is, a tremendous number of people went off into third parties. Another example... Much more recent, 2016, where the Libertarian Party got its highest vote ever, where Jill Stein and the Greens got a very, very substantial vote, and where there was you know, other minor parties, third parties, that got way more than normal. When that happens, you introduce volatility into the process. Mm. And when that volatility gets introduced in, um, you can end up with results you didn't expect. Mm. Trump won because an awful lot of people went off over to third parties. Don't blame the third parties for that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Don't blame the independents for that. They don't get those votes uh, unfairly. Mm-hmm. They get those votes because people are frustrated with the major candidates. I think we've got a little bit of potential for that this yeah. fall. I do think a lot of people are not taking Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s candidacy as seriously as they should. It's not that you should like him or dislike him. Sure. It's that he does have a base. Yeah. And I think Cornell West may as well. No, there's a lot of volatility, a lot of volatility in this race. Uh, Cornell West is our guest on this program yesterday. He was our lead guest uh, on the King holiday uh, yesterday. An amazing conversation. If you missed it, uh, go to any of our uh, social platforms. You can uh, find the podcast of that conversation yesterday with Dr. West. Brilliant as always in our dialogue with him on yesterday's program. Speaking of Dr. King, when we come forward, Bill Ackman, uh, the, the white brother behind pushing out Claudine Gay at Harvard, had some strange things to say about Dr. King yesterday on his holiday. We'll talk about that before we lose John Nichols at the top of the hour. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of this rich dialogue with Tavis Smiley. 
Got about four and a half minutes left. <clears throat> Excuse me, four and a half minutes left with John Nichols. John, so I want to get to this right quick here. You mentioned Dean Phillips earlier in this conversation. Dean Phillips uh, is a former Democratic uh, congressman who has uh, decided to challenge uh, Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. Cornell West and Robert Kennedy running as independents, but Dean Phillips running as a Democrat uh, against uh, uh, President uh, Biden for the Democratic nomination. So Bill Ackman. Uh, is the white brother who you all know we've discussed many times on this program was behind pushing out mm -hmm. Claudine Gay at Harvard, uh, and he's, he's a billionaire hedge fund manager. <clears throat> and in a conversation yesterday with guess who Elon Musk uh, on X uh, and Democratic candidate Dean Phillips, uh, so they were all together because Ackman last week pledged one million dollars to Phillips' campaign. To help him get the nomination, he won't win, of course, against Joe Biden. But I just want to—I want to just make it clear who this Bill Ackman guy is. He pushed out Claudine Gay at Harvard. Then he found out his wife had plagiarized her own work. Now he's giving a million dollars to Dean Phillips to try to defeat Joe Biden, and he's hanging out yesterday with Phillips and Elon Musk for a conversation on X. And here's what he had to say, and I—I I quote. Um, I think Dr. King would be very opposed to this sort of ideology, even though, you know, diversity is a good thing, even though, of course, a culture where everyone feels comfortable and included is critically <clears throat> important. He says that uh, he refers to King's I have a dream speech uh, being precisely about a world where people will be judged by the color of their skin, but not the content of but the content of their character. And when I came to learn about the DEI movement, which is an ideological movement, it really is the reverse of that. It goes on and on and on. You can find this story at Rolling Stone. Just uh, just Google Rolling Stone. Uh, and the headline is Bill Ackman says MLK would be opposed to DEI movement. He has some other strange things to say, but this Bill Ackman guy is becoming more and more into focus for a lot of people, and he obviously ain't shy about it, John Nichols. He is not shy about it. And remember, we had another guy who did this back uh, a few decades ago named Donald Trump. So mm -hmm. sometimes these wealthy guys start getting interested in politics, and the next thing you know, they're in it. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I will tell you, and by the way, if you look at Trump's record of how he came into politics at the Central Park Five, same way, same they way, they often come in in pretty ugly ways. That's right. So here's the deal on this. I, you know, I don't claim to be the greatest expert on, on Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, I wrote a book about his ideology and his politics, as, and that of others. It was a book about social democracy in America, and I read an awful lot of King's writings, including his letters, sure. his diaries, you know, everything. And uh, yeah, my sense of this is that Dr. King really did want a colorblind society, but he wasn't a fool. Mm -hmm. He understood that to get there, you had to, you didn't get there by denying reality, by denying, you know, history. You got there by understanding it in a deeper and more fundamental way. Dr. King was an intellectual. He was a, a profoundly educated man who spent a lot of time studying, a lot of time researching. He took seriously understanding why things happen, the systems, the structures. And so I would disagree with Mr. Ackman. Yeah. In fact, quite passionately, I think, I think Dr. King would say that as a society, we desperately need to examine systemic racism. We no desperately question. need to examine these barriers. No, That's my view. Bernice, his daughter, who I know well, Bernice, the youngest daughter, has pushed back and said, my father's dream and work included eradicating racism, not ignoring it. He was about eradicating racism, not ignoring That's it. That's right. And we, we spent time with our conversation with Cornell West just yesterday on this program. Again, check out the podcast. We were talking about this very issue yesterday. While we were talking about this, Ackman was acting a fool. 
Um, and we were talking about the fact that people are twisting his words like a pretzel. It was Dr. West in the first hour. Then our third hour, there's a book out precisely about this by a professor at USC. Uh, we, she was on our third hour yesterday, and we talked about her book, uh, and it specifically is about how the right continues to weaponize King's words against all the rest of us. So, we, again, check out yesterday's program if you missed any of it. We talked about this very stuff yesterday here. Bill Ackman just steps right into it intentionally and unapologetically. We'll talk more about this in the days ahead. I digress for now. John Nichols, I appreciate you, man. Love, love, love your insights. And, uh, my friend, stay warm to the to the extent you can. I want you to come out to Wisconsin. Uh, nope, 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 we'll, not doing it. We'll test, we'll test your metal. <laughs> not doing it. <laughs> talk to you soon, John. All the best to you. I look forward to it, brother. Be strong. Take care. Likewise. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.